Yeah, it's a lucky thing. You know, sometimes inspiration hits you at certain points. And for me, it was, for me, it was late twenties. Some people don't get it until they're 30, 40, 50, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't make a difference. You can find balance at any time. It just comes down to, as with solving any problem, you have to prioritize it. You have to say, this is what's important. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm willing to make sacrifices to make this primary thing come true. Hi, Hi, everybody. everybody. Hey, you said everybody. We did that in unison. Everybody, everybody. Everybody. Welcome to At Home with Linda and Drew Scott. I like the little Backstreet Boys that you're doing there. (laughs) This is a show where we chat with artists, experts, dreamers, and doers about what makes us feel most at home. Hmm. What makes me feel most at home? Cuddling up and watching movies and TV shows. Yes. Yeah, just cranking the heat. Oh, cuddling. Maybe, you don't maybe. like to crank the heat, don't lie. I am cranking the heat. You are the heat. Yeah. But the, you did paint a good picture there, Lindy. This is At Home. We have been binge watching shows. What have you been saying? What, what what's, have what's your been best? watching? Well, we're not quite done Nine Perfect Strangers. Started White Lotus. Everyone has been talking about Squid Games. Is Squid yeah. Game? Yeah, and that, that was—is that from Japan or where, where was that? Korea. Was it, oh, it's Korea. It's Korean. Yeah. Um, and it looks great, but scary. But scary. I want to watch it, but Linda I doesn't want to watch it too. It. But it's always so late by the time we start. And you think I you're gonna wanna, have nightmares? Yeah, I'm a hundred percent gonna have nightmares. <laughs> I, I like cherish my peaceful sleep. Yeah. So wait, <laughs> what's the most peaceful thing we can watch? I don't know, like painting with Bob? Oh, yes. Bob Ross. <laughs> I love watching him before bed. Or, or watching anything uh, with like Jane Goodall. That's that's also great because mm-hmm. uh, it's just relaxing in nature as well. I like to binge. I don't like to, I don't like to be someone who I only want to watch one episode a week and then I'll keep coming back. I want to get it all within a couple of days. Yeah, I, I can't watch. wait a week. I actually like that there are a lot of new series that I've seen that are just actually like a six or seven episode run. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to commit like for 30 episodes to see a season. Yeah. Like, uh, what was the recent one? Mary of Easttown. Yeah. That was so good. And that was great. Kate Winslet, you're such a great actress. I love you. Mm-hmm. You know, one thing that's funny, we talk about all these shows we love and that we're streaming do you remember back, like back in the day? The blockbuster days? Where we had to go, yeah, we had to go buy our movies or shows or we had to sit in front of the TV and watch all the commercials. Oh, we had to. We, we had, had to. to. I actually just, loved commercials. I didn't. I never did. I still love commercials and trailers. I, I can remember trailers. my dad recording everything on the VHS and uh, then we would go back and the zzz, zzz, and you rewind too many times, it starts to look Ooh, fuzzy. And then you have to use the pencil to like rewind it or something. Yeah, oh, you know when the- If like the tape the, comes yeah. loose or whatever, yeah. <laughs> Anybody young listening has no idea what we're talking about because of the Netflix days. But now, speaking of Netflix, our guest this week is Mark Randolph, tech entrepreneur, advisor, author, and environmental advocate. And his career spanned four decades, during which he has founded or co-founded several successful startups, including Netflix. Mm-hmm. He shares his intentional approach to designing his life. Uh, we learn about how he has balanced work, home life, family, and very important to him, his time outdoors. And we also get into how nature can teach us a lot about leadership. One note I'll give everyone, there may be a little swearing in this episode, so... So if you're listening with little ones, just be aware. Be aware. Linda's got a potty mouth. (laughs) Was it me? This time. (laughs) This is Mark Randolph. (laughs) 
Okay, if ADT wasn't professional enough, now ADT installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. I mean, what are they going to do next? They're, they're going to start a country singing career. I would listen to a country band named ADT. Also, I like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with my Google Nest doorbell. Just saying. Your Google Nest doorbell? I said our. He said my. Everybody check that. Yeah. All right. Well, I like to control my ADT smart devices like my lights, my locks. <laughs> my security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. And I like to say, hey, Google, to get started. Listen, I said ours. I'm all about ours, not mine. <laughs> Help protect what matters most with all this, plus 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. So I was not one of those kids who was always getting drilled into them. You should be a doctor or you should be a lawyer, or which is really mm. code for you have to take the safe path yes. to what people would consider successful. Uh, these were the type of parents where I would come home and say, hey, I think I might want to go caving this weekend. And rather than getting this freak out reaction of, oh my God, you're going to break your arm or something terrible is going to happen to you. They go, oh, that sounds fantastic. Mm. Uh, so every time there was a fork in the road, they were always supportive of me taking the less traveled fork. And that happened over and over and over again. And it kind of gave me this confidence that I could follow my curiosity. Mm. You know, I, at school, I, I majored in geology, uh, which is not a classical background for someone who goes into entrepreneurship. No. But I didn't major in geology because I had these aspirations of being a petroleum geologist. I majored in geology because they went on great field trips. I was already into the outdoors and I went, oh my God, these guys spend their weeks and weekends traipsing around up in the Adirondacks and they're down on the, up in the Canadian Shield. And I go, that's for me. That's amazing. And, and it was always like that. And so young Mark really had this wonderful life of being able to pursue opportunities. And the way it translates more directly is that I was also one of these kids who, when I saw something wrong or broken or missing, I wanted to fix it or fill it, which meant that if I say, so, you know, why isn't there an outing club? Well, let's start one. Mm -hmm. um, there's no humor magazine. Okay, let's start one. Uh, boy, I'd love to be able to buy, let's do a big gear collective. Did, did that I mean, annoy the other kids? Did, because that's so much like Jonathan and me. And at, at some point, some, I remember in, we don't have this, Right away, the kids all started getting to the point of looking over at us like, what's he going to do now? How was the, what was your action like? It's like a Mickey Rooney movie. Yeah. It's yeah. like, uh, my dad's got a barn. Oh, my mom can make some curtains. <laughs> it's funny because you look backwards and you go, where did some of the skills that I have now come from? And it's clear that a lot of it came from this because one of the skills you have to do as an entrepreneur is bring people along. You have to convince them to join you on this irrational, crazy, apparently difficult journey when you're not going to pay them or you're not going to pay them well. Or they've got to leave their comfortable jobs and come join you. And so a lot of what I was doing was saying, hey, let's all work really hard this weekend and not get paid for it yeah. because we're going to do X. 
And that requires this power of persuasion. This requires this confidence and this enthusiasm. And I must say, I got pretty good at that. Do you find it is harder to adapt that um, approach as we get older? Oh, absolutely. You know, all that risk-taking and curiosity uh, following gets squeezed out of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's there's a lot of reasons for it, but probably the biggest one is how competitive things have become. You know, you, you read about people who are interviewing to get into the right kindergarten mm-hmm. or yeah, the I right know. preschool because if they get in the right preschool and it's a path to get into the right elementary school and then you've got to do great in the right elementary school to get in the right mm-hmm. high school then the right college and yeah. the kids who are really smart and really talented learn not necessarily how to follow their curiosity, but they learn how to figure out what it takes to get the good grades, to have the teachers respond appropriately. And year after year after year of that, it ends up basically teaching people not to take risks. It teaches them, learn what's expected and do that. Yeah, You know, I I do a lot of work with uh, college age um, entrepreneurs uh, and uh, I do some work with a, a liberal arts college and, you know, up in New England someplace. Uh, and it happens to also be the school that two of my kids went to. And it's also where my brother went. Mm. Now, my brother is an investment banker. He is a very senior person at one of the big banks. And so he goes to this college to recruit for the bank. And I, of course, go there working with the entrepreneurs. And we have this joke that the two of us are fighting for these kids' souls. <laughs> that, one to that, release the soul and one to confine, confine them. <laughs> we say in this battle of, uh, for the souls, he, is grossly, um, he has grossly more ammunition than I do because he's saying, come to an internship for the bank. You know, we'll pay you $80,000 a year for your internship. And I'm saying, no, move to San Francisco and live four to an apartment and eat ramen. <laughs> yeah. But what so. I'm really trying to do is take, I don't need to win everybody, but there's so many kids whose parents, as we mentioned earlier, are saying, be a, be a banker, you know, be a doctor, be a lawyer. And so they're going down this path and I'm really trying to tell them, listen, if you want to be a banker, for God's sake, be a banker. But if you really have this idea that you want to try, if you think being someone who's trying to figure things out is exciting to you, there is a career there. And mm-hmm. let's go explore that. Well, I think what that means in my mind, what you're doing there is if you've ever seen horses on, on like a track or whatever, they wear the blinders, right? Um, <laughs> like this, they have that, they've been, they've been conditioned yeah. to have that. And what you're saying is you can go and do that path, but let's just take these off so you can see the other things out there that may spark your interest and, and follow that passion. Yeah, Which exactly, really? exactly, exactly right. You know, you know, as we all know, it's become this culturally popular thing to be an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. We kind of make heroes of the Elon Musks and the, um, you know, Jeff Bezoses and the of the world. And we have shows like Shark Tank that go, look how exciting it is. You get mm-hmm. to pitch and you get to raise money, but in reality, that is not at all what your day to day is. And so I'm really trying to tell people, listen, if you really think you want to be an entrepreneur. You don't need to commit. Listen, come out, intern someplace for a summer. Mm-hmm. Watch, sit at the desk next to um, an early stage CEO and see what they do all day. And that may send you scurrying back to that uh, high paying job on Wall Street. But if you go, oh my gosh, this looks incredible. 
then you at least know you're in the right place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you define what that day-to-day is typically? And also I, I think a lot of that culture was and maybe still is, you know, a lot of people pride themselves on working grueling hours and, you know, it's kind of a competition of like how tired one is, um, you know, and like you measure that against your success. Like, oh man, I'm working like all hours of the night and you kind of like wear that as a badge of honor. But you, on the other hand, you have always approached it with a, a balance between your work life and your personal life. So can you just talk about all that? Yeah, boy, we can get into a long discussion of what is success. Mm-hmm. And we should hold that for just a little bit because I do want to talk about what is it an entrepreneur really does. And which goes to what I think should be the motivation. And really what an entrepreneur does every day is solve problems. Or if you want to put it in a better spin, they're solving puzzles. By definition, a startup is trying to do something that hasn't been done before. It's trying to do something that they don't know in advance how to do it or how it's going to turn out. You're not following a playbook. You are making it up as you go along. But that means that most of the things you try don't work. And in a day-to-day basis, what you're doing is you're going, I have a hypothesis. I'm going to figure out a way to test it. I'm going to run that test. And that test could take an hour, but it could take a week. It could take two weeks. And you'll keep doing that over and over again until you recognize why it's not working. Mm -hmm. But now you have some sort of insight in the next thing you should try. And now you're going to do that. So it's this series of digging in, focusing, doing one thing over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. and then being completely willing to abandon it all and do something different the next day. My brother and I have always been little entrepreneurs. We started our first business at seven years old and we just, we were always looking for something new to try and grow. And, and we always had each other to, to, to support, which, which I think a lot of people I see who are, are going after a, a dream or an idea to create something on their own. I'm like, it's a lot tougher because it can be very lonely. Um, but Linda and I were talking about this just before we hopped on. Um, people define entrepreneurship or an entrepreneur in a very um, single way that I, I find a lot of times it's that, it's that one person with big ideas who's going after big business growth, whatever it might be, make a lot of money, whatever. But that's not, that's not how we and, see well, entrepreneurship. Well, to be transparent, we were comparing each other. Yeah, um, Because Linda Drew was me. initially saying like, you know, he, Drew thrives off of like being an entrepreneur and I like shut down. However, like it's not that I don't, um, I just don't always love like his style of it because it's too fast paced for me. Um, I get that it works for him and he's happy in that mode. But for me, I like, I'm, I'm like a sloth. <laughs> so how would you work with, if you had people like that, like, like Linda likes that slow pace. She likes to really dig in and take her time with something. And how would you encourage them? So in terms of a life success, it, it's a clearly a balanced thing. And I know we can talk about that more, but in terms of a business success, I've always defined it very personally. I mean, it's someone who's kind of lucky enough to have figured out what they're good at and what they enjoy, and then finding a way to be able to do that. And if you really get to come to work every day and doing something you're good at and that you really enjoy, it's, as the old ridiculous saying goes, it's not really work anymore. But, you know, to to your point, you know, Linda, there's not this single definition of the single hard driving, uh, do this, do that, do this. Um, Entrepreneur is the only way you can do it. I know a lot of people, I mean, there's, there's a big, uh, differential. Um, I tend to play in the venture world, 
um, which is all about aiming for big outcomes and big returns, uh, only because I know that world and I actually like that world. Mm. But a lot of people I know have uh, what are called lifestyle businesses, where it's constructed not to stress you out. It's constructed not to grow at all cost. It's constructed to be sustainable, to allow you to have um, more time, more flexibility, mm-hmm. more options. Um, it's absolutely not a one-size-fits-all um, thing. Something that I really uh, resonates with me from your book um, and hearing you talk uh, on your podcast too is that idea of balance. And I, I know, like you, you mentioned, the stress that it can be and, and all the hard work. It's not all glory going into a, a new business or going after your goals. How did you find, you know, obviously everybody knows Netflix. If you don't know Netflix, I don't know what rock you're under. Um, <laughs> but this, the, the stress of growing the company, but still right from the early days, you had those principles of the time you needed with your family. Um, can you talk through, was it, a, was it a struggle to be able to give yourself that balance with not feeling like you're letting down your team or, or the, on the opposite side, you're letting down your family by not coming back when you said you would? Oh, absolutely. If this was easy, everybody would do it. Um, it requires first and foremost the decision that that is what is going to be the dominating principle, that that's the piece you have to get right first and foremost. Mm -hmm. And I probably didn't discover that until my late 20s. You know, when I was working like a dog, I mean, I was, you know, working weekends and staying late and not because I had a slave driver or a boss, because I thought this is also fascinating what I was doing, but it dawned on me, and it dawned on me slowly, that my girlfriend, the woman who's now my wife, was basically getting the leftovers. You know, she was getting the times that I wasn't working. You know, she was there when I got home from work at nine o'clock at night. And I, we kind of realized that that is not the basis for a sustainable um, relationship. Mm-hmm. That if I was going to make this work, um, and make it work for both of us, I was going to have to figure out some way to make both of these things coexist. And I had an additional challenge, which is that I also learned fairly early in my life. The other thing that's important to me as an individual, as a person, which is this outdoors thing, you know, the climbing, the backcountry skiing, the mountain biking, the kayaking, the rafting, these are not activities which you squeeze in between your 11 o'clock phone call and your one o'clock meeting. If you want to go and raft the no attack, which is up in Northern Alaska by the Arctic Circle, you've got to block that time out a long way in advance. But to make those things coexist, I go, I have to figure out some way to build a life which allows me to have these three things that are important to me. And it's a discipline. Um, For example, you know, at Netflix, uh, I had this, and even before Netflix, had this strict policy that every Tuesday night, 5 o'clock p.m., I would leave the office, my wife would get a sitter, we would have a date night. And this was no exceptions. Every Tuesday, 5 o'clock. And as you can imagine, in a startup, there are crises galore. Mm. And base rule was, we have a crisis, we're going to wrap it up by 5 Okay, you got to talk to me? Great. We're going to talk on the way to the car. But wait, so wait, how did you do that? Because I would say, I've, I mean, we've started many companies and, and this, like, I feel guilty if I end up, well, okay, but this is such a crisis that something that needs to be um, dealt with. I, I felt bad like I'm abandoning my partners if I had to go and do something else, but you stuck to your but guns. But then there's the other side of don't you feel guilty not 
um, following through with your personal right, stuff. Right, right. I had made the decision that this was a critical ingredient to making it happen. And listen, you've been, you've both been there, I'm sure, which is you say, um, all right, every Tuesday at five o'clock and you do two or three of them and then something big happens and you call your partner and you say, oh, this is, a, this, this, I just can't, this time it's too important. We have the bankers, we're uh, closing a deal. Yes, that's the, that's just the, as they say, the camel getting its nose uh, under the tent. Then pretty soon, the whole camel's in the tent uh, and mm. you've lost that thing. Uh, so I, this is not, since we're, since we're wrestling with this one thing, I've got to tell a quick story. It's going to take a second. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is relevant to exactly what we're talking about. And earlier in my career, my wife and I lived in Paris because I was running the marketing for a big international software company. And we had offices all over Europe. And so my job basically meant spending all these times working with the marketing people in each office. So maybe on Monday, I'd fly to Milan and Tuesday, I'd be in Frankfurt and Wednesday, I'd be up in Stockholm and Thursday in London. In other words, I was flying like crazy. So hundreds of flights and because of traffic, because of procrastination, because of my nature, I was late a lot. And I would find myself running through the airport, frantically trying to get to the gate before the flight left. And about halfway through the year, this revelation came, which is that this, this is crazy. I go half the time that I go sprinting for the gate, I get there and the plane's already gone. All that running made no difference. 49% of the time I get there and the door is wide open and I go running in my seat, sweating profusely. And the plane just sits there for another 40 minutes. What I realized is that for all of these flights, it didn't make a difference running for the plane. And I vowed that moment I would never run for a plane again. And I didn't. And I haven't run for a plane since. But I realized that it's the exact same thing with these crises that kept coming up. Mm. And it's not just the crises. It's the sense of yourself as having to get everything right. I need to review that presentation at 11 o'clock tonight because there's an important pitch tomorrow morning. I have to go over this copy. I need to double check this. But when you're reviewing someone else's presentation at 11 o'clock the night before the meeting, you're running for the plane. Mm. And I'm not saying that you couldn't find an error because the font size was off or there's a misspelling or maybe we could make this slide better. Yes, it's better but it's not going to make the difference. Yeah. You're not going to lose the deal or gain the mm. deal at 11 o'clock the night before. You win the deal or lose the deal three weeks before when you get your pricing right or your offer right. And once you kind of recognize that's happening, you go, I do not need to be involved in every single decision. I do not need to be the person who singly can resolve this crisis. I have a team. I can trust them. I can leave at five o'clock and amazingly enough, things sort themselves out. And you got a great date night. Exactly right. And even more amazingly, I don't know how this happens. The crises seem to not happen on Tuesdays after five (laughs) o'clock. But the biggest benefit Hmm. besides to my ability to spend an evening with my wife once a week was I'm a big believer in the importance of culture. And more importantly, that culture is not what you say. 
It's what you do. Mm. And you could preach to your blue in the face about, oh no, we all believe that people should have balance in their lives. And we all, we're going to, listen, I have a beautiful break room poster that talks about balance and Mm. I'm going to even carve it in the cornerstone of our building. That's all bullshit. Mm -hmm. What people really key off of is how you act. And when they see Mark, the CEO of the company, leaving at five o'clock every Tuesday, they go, wow, this is real. Uh, And they feel comfort that they can do it. And then you begin seeing them carving time out to make sure they have balance in their own lives. We've been following your footsteps. And honestly, reading your book is a big part of that too, because it it inspires us. And um, with that balance as well with um, your, your home life, but I also love, like you're saying, nature is a big thing for you too. And the National Outdoor Leadership School, can you tell us about that? You've said how that's really shaped who you are a lot uh, as well. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's been a tremendous influence of who I am as a person. And this was something that I started, the National Outdoor Leadership School, by the way, is basically a, a school which uses the wilderness as a classroom to teach leadership. And it's done in a fairly straightforward way. They'll take a group of people, I happened to do it when I was 14 years old for the first time, but they do this for adults as well. And they take you out to a roadhead, a trailhead. They drop you off and they say, we'll come pick you up in a month. A month? And your small group heads off. That's amazing. And But what happens is they'll walk you 15 minutes off the road and then say, okay, we're going to break into small groups. Uh, Randolph, you're leader of the day. And now all of a sudden there's a 14-year-old kid and I have to make a decision about, okay, when do we leave? How long do we hike before we take our first break? What do I do if someone is saying that their foot's getting a blister? Do I take the route which is flat but longer? Or do I do the one which is shorter but over the pass? I have to make real decisions with real consequences. Now, trailing the group, of course, is the instructor who is obviously keeping us from getting into any kind of tremendous danger, but Mm -hmm. more importantly is watching how this unfolds. And at the end of the day, wow, I've learned a tremendous amount about leadership just by the very act of doing it. I've been given this circumstance where I'm given real responsibility. I have to make decisions with true consequences, Mm -hmm. but more importantly, find out an hour later, three hours later, five hours later, just how well I Mm -hmm. did. And I did that when I was 14. I came back again, did it when I was 15, then 16. Then I became an instructor for the school. And I began having responsibility for the full course. But little by little, I was gaining these critical skills of leadership, which is being able to, for example, communicate with clarity and confidence Mm. things about which you may not be personally clear or confident about. It's being able to make decisions when you're given, you know, ambiguous or contradictory information to make those decisions. It's being able to make a decision on which way to go when you can't see what's Mm. ahead of you. It's being able to react to the unexpected. All the exact same things that you have to do in the business world. But here I was learning those things by doing them when I was um, a very, very young person. To the point that I often say, I almost everything I've learned about business, um, I learned with a backpack on. That's amazing. That that is that's really really cool. Do you still get out and, and do um, backpack trips in the Absolutely. mountains? Absolutely. Oh, uh, any any chance I get, I, I mean, I've done these amazing trips, but I've done a few of them with all three of my kids. Oh. Uh, maybe four or five years ago, all four of us climbed wow. the Grand together, which is spectacular. Uh, for Father's Day, 
last year we did a, during COVID, we did a amazing backpack trip, just me and my three mm. kids. That's pretty cool. Really fantastic. ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT believes the smarter the home, the safer the security. Help protect what matters most with 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. You said that very professionally. I try. (laughs) Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help you make your home smarter and safer. When you have something like that where you it's just you and your family, so I mean, there's one aspect with the leadership group and what you can learn there, but when it's just you and, and your kids, what does that do for you when bringing you that balance? Because I know you're still a driven business person and, and you like to, um, you still have that drive, but yeah, what does that do for you, having that time just with them? Oh, I, I don't know how to even articulate that. Yeah. Perhaps it's a modern problem, but first of all, to have your cell phones gone. I mean, what a wonderful way to spend time with your kids without that distraction. Time slows down. There isn't the sense of, oh gosh, it's 11 o'clock, I have to you your time is when the sun comes up in the morning yeah. and the sun goes down. And other than that, you're in, you're really in no hurry. Um, you have a leisurely conversation. You just talk. You're you're hiking. You're backpacking, and you're just talking for hours at a time about nothing. You're joking. You're singing. It's a uh, uh, it's just hard to hard to recreate that anyplace else besides. Uh, it's beautiful though. Yeah. Out in the woods, it's it's mm-hmm. incredible. You know, also as a parent, it's one of the. I've always said it's probably the most difficult thing. No, this is going to sound crazy. But listen, you have a million decisions to make as you're raising kids. But God, the scariest one for me is how do I raise kids who really enjoy doing these things? Mm. Um, Because um, in a lot of ways, uh, the type of things I enjoy are what are called type two fun. In other words, type two fun are things that aren't necessarily fun in the moment. Mm. Oh, okay. They're either scary or dangerous or difficult or painful or you're freezing or you're starving or you're scared. But yeah. afterwards you go, oh my God, that was outrageously <laughs> great. Uh, that's type two fun. And that doesn't come naturally to kids. Um, my foot hurts. I'm hot. I'm hungry. <laughs> And so you have to do it as an incrementalism. You have mm. to say something simple where you, they go, they suffer a little bit, but get some big reward, some view, some great swimming hole. Mm. And when it kicks, when all of a sudden they realize that being willing to suffer for two days gives you these unbelievably cool outcomes. There's magic moments where you're out uh, in the surf lineup and you realize I'm surfing with my eight-year-old son. Mm. Not, I'm not pushing him into waves. I'm not following him in. I'm not watching him all the time. No, we're now surfing as peers. And, oh my gosh, that is the most cool mm. moment uh, you can imagine. That's so day. beautiful to be able to share that experience. <laughs> yeah, you know, Lucky that uh, I mean I, I don't know what we did, but it 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 worked, and so 
being able to do that with your kid is pretty. Yeah. pretty what do you think, Linda? What do you think? Well, should, should we? Because <laughs> we, we laugh about this because I'm someone that when I was younger, I was always thinking like, yeah, my uh, my kids, they're going to be basketball players. They're going to be this. They're going to be that. And in my mind, I just was listening up all this stuff. And I think it might have been Linda that was like, but what if that's not what they want to do? And I had never considered <laughs> what they want to do. And so it was like a whole new side of my brain opening. I'm like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll just try to find ways to encourage what they like. And hopefully they like the things that I like. Maybe how can I subconsciously encourage them there without forcing them? So. But again, as Mark said, like you, you show them by doing, not just preaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all you can really do is expose people to things, and mm. it and and expose it to them in the right ways, and it resonates with them or it doesn't resonate mm-hmm. with them, and that's part of part of accepting uh, yeah. kids for who they are. Yeah. The other interesting thing is that my my wife is not a type two fun person, oh. but we have a we have a really great balance. So we'll just go to these uh, amazing places that also happen to have a really wonderful uh, hotel mm. or inn that has a very, very wonderful patio where she can sit out and read a book and have a glass of wine while we're up in the mountains doing something nuts. <laughs> She'll and, uh, play cards day, and you're skydiving, yeah. <laughs> I'll, have dinner to, I'll have dinner together. <laughs> That's amazing. What, um, oh, sorry, go oh, ahead. I was just going to ask if you could talk about um, your work with 1% for the planet. Uh, absolutely. I've always kind of felt this belief that when you have a platform and whether it's the fact that people will listen to what you say or whether you simply have um, been fortunate economically or fortunate in the sense you have enough to eat, you have to do something to give back, but it has to be giving back in a way that you feel strongly about. And, and that just for, for, for me, in other words, um, and certainly I've been asked to join all kinds of boards. And at first I made bad decisions because I based them on what felt like this was a good thing. Like, and I joined a friend's medical board, you know, who's telling me to solve this disease. Got an amazingly great thing, but my heart wasn't in it. Um, and I, I, it wasn't the same. And I said, I've got to find some cause that I really believe strongly in. And for me, the natural fit was that doing what I can for, I say, eco- preservation of the planet. And certainly the work I do with Knowles does that because people only fight to protect things that they can mm-hmm. see and that they can feel. And so doing this work to make people comfortable being out in the woods, to bring people out into the mountains is in fact taking a positive step. 1% for the planet is very different. That's basically helping companies recognize that they do have an obligation to give back. That whether it's explicit or not, they are using resources. They are mm-hmm driving trucks. They're, they're, the products they create are creating waste or using water or using fresh air and that they really have an obligation to give back. And what 1% for the Planet is an organization that was founded by a guy named Devon Chouinard, who's the founder of Patagonia, that basically companies pledge to give 1% of their revenue, not mm. 1% of their profits, to environmental nonprofits or environmental causes. And 1% for the Planet is an organization that facilitates that that helps companies do this more effectively. And we'll, we'll share a link too as well in our show notes because I think that's such an important thing. It's, uh, you know, in our, our business as well, we, you know, we have a product line, you know, when we're building homes, how can we build in a more sustainable way something that is, you know, or decarbonizing a home is a huge thing that we're advocates for. Um, and so, I, yeah, I really love that. And it's, it's something... You know, we we talk about this. You know, if if somebody's trying to save money to buy a house or whatnot, if if you keep it in your in your bank account and it's right there, by the end of the year you're going to spend it. 
but we always talk about tucking that money away or putting it towards your mortgage right away because if you do it right away, just one percent, two percent, a couple of a couple of dollars here or there, whatever it is, of every paycheck, you're you're not going to notice a difference in your lifestyle. You still go to the same movies and dinners, yet you've been paying something down. What you're doing here to me is that it's just a smart thing for everyone as well. You you won't even notice that you're missing that one percent in the end once you get used to it. Very true. It's it's just a gesture that a company can do. Incrementalism is a really powerful psychological step. And most people, a lot of people get paralyzed by that. I mean, it's the same thing. You, When you're fortunate, you say, I should give something. But there's always going to be people with less than me, always people with more than me. And to feel that unless I give everything away, I'm not going to give anything away. No, just no. take a small step. Just do something. Yeah, a little um, bit. And 1%, in my opinion, is a small step to take. And, and, yeah. and absolutely, when taken in, in aggregate, um, can make a big, big difference. Mm. You know, Linda and I always talk about at home, our podcast, we talk about at home is the house we live in where we feel safe and secure, but our home is also our planet. And that's a huge thing for us is to really, you know, we all want to live on this planet for a very long time. We all want to be here for a long time. <laughs> we want our, our future generations to have a, a safe, healthy place to live. And so just doing that little bit to support and give back to our planet makes a big difference. Yeah, it's so it's just so important, especially the challenges uh, for climate in which we have to make sacrifices now that we the three of us are not going to feel. Mm-hmm. These are things we're doing for people who are going to be here hundreds of years from now. And that's always a difficult thing to do. Yeah, But, you know, you, you got to start someplace. So if we jump back to how you were raised, it's sort of like a, a two-part there. Um, you had mentioned your parents were so different. They weren't the ones that were going to lecture you about, you know, um, you know, what you're doing, or they, they would they would give you some adventurous thing as a, as something that you would typically think parents would be like, no, you can't do that. Where did they get that sense from? Like, like how, how, was it how they were raised, or was it was it just their experiences? But why did they have that different outlook on life and how they wanted to raise you? You know, you sometimes wish you could go back. My parents are both dead now, so you could, I kind of wish I could go back and ask them. Mm. I really understand more about their uh, upbringing and how that may have shaped who they were and how they chose to raise their children. And so unfortunately, a lot of it has to be conjecture. But Mm. what's interesting is that my father, extremely risk averse. Mm. He was not a risk taker. Mm. He was someone who I think was encouraging me to do these things to live through me vicariously. Mm. I think he always regretted the fact that he hadn't taken more risks with his life and with his career. Uh, He did not love what he did. Um, Mm. uh, He got in the train every morning, went into the city, wore a suit, came back every night, and I don't think he found much joy in it. And so Mm. I think that perhaps a lot of his encouragement of me was a subtle way or perhaps even an unconscious way of saying, don't be like me. Mm. That's interesting. And and I know like you wrote about his eight handwritten principles, the Randolph's rules for success, but I love the list. And actually like there's a lot that resonates with me. I grew up on the cowboy code. My dad was a rancher and we grew up on a ranch and, but there are a lot of values that are, they're very similar there. So did you find that even though his, the way he lived his life was very different 
on sort of that safer path, do you find that his principles really worked for you in 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 what you've created and what you've done with your life? Yeah, you know, he because he did. It was, it was the day before my very first day of work. I had gotten a real job finally, uh, and I was going to start the next day. And that's when he called me to the den and then tore off a page off of one of those little five by eight yellow pads and handed it to me. And it was the Randolph Rules of Success. And my father was an investment banker, and he could have had these rules be, you know, uh, cash flow is king, or you know, buy yeah. low and sell high, or some kind yeah, of yeah. things like that. But these were much more down to earth. They were about respect. They were about honesty. Um, they were about hard work. And what was interesting is these rules were basically how to be a mensch, you know, how to be a, a decent person. Mm. That the Randolph rules for success were you can be a decent person and still be mm-hmm. successful. And I think those are the things that um, he did have and that he yeah. did impart um, impart to me. Linda and I have looked through the list several times and I <laughs> I made a note of number two, never ever present as fact, opinion or anything you don't know. It takes great care and discipline. And when you think about it, there are so many things in our day to day where we pass on information just like it's just conversation, not realizing that we're perpetuating something that we have no idea if it's actually fact or not. If you look at the pandemic, all the things that people believe about the pandemic or um, or different opinions about different people or politics in general, it, it blows my mind when you actually sit and think about it. It does take great care and discipline to not just be one of those perpetuators of what we don't know is true. Yeah, abs- it, it, it's a dual principle. It's one is you have to be able to discern when someone is bullshitting you, mm-hmm. or that almost sounds intentional, when someone's passing mm. along something that they read yeah. or heard or just thought and presenting it as fact. And then you also have to take the discipline of never being the person who does that themselves. Mm-hmm. I think it's really fascinating. You know, my two, two of my kids had uh, had liberal arts educations, and I was so impressed with the focus these days on um, evaluating source, mm. which mm. is not just going in and reading something, but evaluating who's saying this, what's mm-hmm. their source. What's their level of credibility? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a skill that certainly, especially now in this age of social media yeah. uh, being the primary source of people's worldview, um, it would be a critical skill for everybody to have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Going back to definition of success, I think you kind of summed it up um, earlier, but is that how you would define success today? Uh, certainly externally focused from a business perspective, I would, I've been successful. You know, I, I've had a chance to be part of starting seven companies. Um, you know, four of them have been IPOs, two of them multi-billion dollar market caps. So great. Um, you know, and certainly Netflix is a big success, but completely sincerely, what I look back on and say, what, what I was successful at was the balance piece, mm-hmm. was that I was able to have started these companies. I was able to have started and grown Netflix and Looker and Micro Warehouse and Mac Warehouse and Mac User Magazine and all the other startups that I did while staying married to the same woman. Yeah. While having my three kids grow up knowing me and as best as I can tell, liking me. 
while being able to most of my life be able to get out into the mountains and climb and ski and bike and raft and kayak and surf. Uh, yeah. As I look back on that, I go, that, that's success. That's, it's beautiful success. It really is. I think it's, it's inspiring. What I really love is that, you know, I have had to continually learn to discipline my, myself in the way of having that balance. Whereas for me, it's so amazing that you had that from the get-go. You already made that, you made that um, pact with yourself from the get-go. So that's, that's really amazing. Yeah, it's a lucky thing. You know, sometimes inspiration hits you at certain points. And for me, it was, for me, it was late 20s. Um, some people don't get it until they're 30, 40, 50. Mm-hmm. But it, it, you know, it doesn't make a difference. The, you can find balance at any time. Uh, and it's never easy. Yeah. It just comes down to, as with solving any problem, you have to prioritize it. You have to say, this is what's important. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm willing to make sacrifices to make this primary thing come true. One thing I would say with everything we've read about you, I, I have one flaw in your theory. No, it's not a flaw. Your, the Canada principle. Your Canada principle. It's a good principle, but I have a different Canada principle. So define yours. Okay, good. Here we go. So the Canada principle, it's for everyone else's benefit, basically is that when we were starting and growing Netflix, we were achieving some success. And people were constantly coming to me and going, Mark, We've got to expand into Canada. That's a 10% immediate revenue bump. And it's easy. It's right across the border. Speak English. Uh, go, wait, wait, wait. Well, hold on a second. Yes, 10% is great, but it's not easy. First of all, uh, it's a different currency. Uh, second of all, they speak English, yes, but it's mandated that you do everything in French in certain mm-hmm. parts of Canada. There's different issues with the content. In other words, this low-hanging fruit is not quite as low-hanging as you think. But the real Canada principle says that the 10% that we would spend to get into Canada, and it probably is going to be more than 10%, mm-hmm. if we took that focus, that discipline, and applied it to our core business, we'll reap benefits far in excess of 10%. Mm -hmm. It means that don't be chasing after expansion when you could take that exact same focus and um, attention and put it onto your core business, continue to get your core business to thrive. At some point, that will change. Yeah, And that percentage of effort that you can put outside is in fact the better place to apply it. But that's the Canada principle. And I actually think that is great. Right. That is a great Canada principle. <laughs> I think it makes so much sense. Ours is uh, much simpler. Yeah. Seeing that Linda and I are Canadian, <laughs> our main Canadian principle is Canadians are awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Be kind, be kind, be polite, be curious. Be polite? <laughs> be polite. <laughs> yeah, that's all. We that, just have a very simple Canadian principle. <laughs> that, listen, those two Canada principles can exist, I think, at there. the same yes. time. It's their yin-yang, uh, yeah. <laughs> if we could all act like Canada- Canadians, I think in some ways the world would be a, uh, a better place. <laughs> well, we like to wrap up our conversations with a, a speed round, a lightning round. Are you ready? Oh boy. Okay, mm-hmm. here we go. All I'm right, Linda. All right. We're ready. What meal makes you feel at home and who cooked it? Unfortunately, I'd have to say, yeah, my wife probably cooked it. It's probably got to be some sort of a stew. Uh, mm. There's something about that comfort food that still gets to me. Uh, and we're experimenting with a lot of new stuff now, now that we're kind of semi-empty nesters. But yeah. man, that's there's nothing better than, than uh, coming in, especially when it's cold mm-hmm. outside. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of skiing. And coming in and having the house smell like mm. that. That's, that's amazing. A, that's special. 
What song reminds you of home? Wow. I don't think I could name one off the top of my head. Unfortunately, my musical taste stopped developing when I was back in uh, my 20s. No, I, I was assuming you were going to say like, country road, take me home. Well, John Denver. Um, no, that, no that's, that doesn't quite make me feel like uh, <laughs> Although a little bit of trivia, that was my very first uh, concert. Oh, cool. Oh, really? John mm-hmm. Denver, yeah. So there you go. So there's, it, it, it does resonate with me. <laughs> nice. What's your perfect Sunday morning at home? Oh, gosh, it's kind of the same as most mornings at home is wake up by myself, empty house, not empty house, everyone's asleep, hot tub Hmm. outside, awesome, and then coffee and newspaper. Oh, man, that's that is the best. And on Sunday, we can usually squeak that along until 11 or 1130. That doesn't quite last as long during the uh, on the weekdays. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. Uh, most vivid memory of home. When we grew up, we had a, uh, I, I'd say, a, I was going to say a lake in our backyard. We called it a lake, but it was really much more of a pond or mm. a puddle. But I grew up skating, and you are Canadian I, <laughs> <laughs> at heart. <laughs> That's what I when I think about is the, the lights would be. We had a light on a tree. I'd be out there shoveling the snow off. We had homemade uh, nets and just skating and shooting. Uh, shooting pucks into nets. That's a very vivid and strong and comforting memory of home. That's amazing. What's a memorable growth moment? My first job, we had a production manager who was incredibly mean. Uh, Production manager means it was a publishing company. So he was doing all the book printing and all that kind of crap. And he was the person who would yell on the phone and was always sharp with people and terrible temper. And everyone, I thought he was a complete jerk, but everyone else in the company loved this guy. It was always, hey, Frank, hey, how you doing? I mean, and, and it was this incredible moment where I was going, what is wrong with me? Why does this guy rub me the wrong way? And then lo and behold, six or nine months later, uh, he left. And as soon as he was gone, everyone was going, oh, thank God he is gone. What He is the biggest, what a jerk. Mm. Hate that guy. And it was that moment where I went, oh my gosh, my judgment is right. Listen to it. And yeah. that was the moment I said, okay, I think I can trust my instincts mm. about people. That's and I've great. gone with that ever since. And it's usually never let me down. So that was a big, big moment for me. Mm-hmm. Last question. What is your favorite binge-worthy series on Netflix? <laughs> Great. That's like asking me which of my three kids is my favorite. We, we watch a lot of TV, um, a fair amount of TV. I don't hold up, my, my, hold up the national average, so someone else is watching more than their fair share to make mm-hmm. up for me. Right now, this is going to sound totally geeky, we're watching Borgen. And Borgen is basically a Danish West Wing. Oh. It's about uh, Danish politics, but in a in a like West Wing was a soap mm-hmm. opera yeah. kind of way. Yeah. And we plunge into these things, and we watch four seasons, <laughs> plow right through it all. Oh wow, amazing! I was watching um, uh, Ragnarok. It's actually a, I think it's Nor- Nor- Norwegian. Norwegian. It's kind of cool how all the how yeah. such strange and all the international yeah. stuffs on Netflix now. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for chatting. Honestly, it's thank been so a lot much. of fun. And- Drew and Linda, thanks so much for letting me chat with you. This was really fun. Yeah, it feels like-
Okay, Linda, where are we going? I'm inspired by Mark. Where are we hitting next? Should we go to Alaska? Should I've we hike some? I've never been to Alaska. You've never been? Have you? Yeah, I've been a couple of times. Remember, we did a Habitat for Humanity buildup in Alaska too. I'm gonna Google this. I where don't were you? you. Mm-hmm. That's the next adventure. We're gonna go and explore Alaska. It is beautiful. Uh, I think was it Anchorage that we were in? Anyway. I'm looking this up right now. You can you Property can Brothers continue. Alaska. Anyway, <laughs> no, I think it's uh, it for for me. I have a goal. I want to explore. All 50 states. I want to jump around the country. I want to do more exploring across Canada as well. I've never been into the Northwest Territories or parts of the Yukon, so it'd be fun. Yvonne of the Yukon. Yeah, that was a really eye-opening chat, and I love that entrepreneurship isn't a one-size-fits-all, and, and that opens up doors to more people and more personality types. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. We're all creative in different ways. We're all driven in different ways, so... Also, we'll have a link to Mark's book, That Will Never Work. Um, it is a great read. Anybody who loves entrepreneurship or wants to hear a story about where he came from and his his beliefs, it's worth reading. Well, thanks to Mark for joining us and thanks to everyone out there for listening. Thank you, everyone. See you next week. See ya. Bye. Bye, Linda. Yeah, I'm right See here. See you for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, we have an amazing team and just want to say a huge thank you to all of them. We could not do this without them. Brandon Angelino. Annalie Bell. Hannah Fan, Courtney Iwanis. West Friend. Chris Cobain. Nicole Schachter. And Sabrina Ayakobuchi. Also, our theme music is by Victoria Shaw and Chad Carlson and our music composed and produced by Rick Russo. Thank you so much for listening. And if you have a few seconds, don't forget to subscribe and rate. Yes, please do. Please do. And also leave comments on our social media at at home we love to hear from you ADT now professionally installs Google Nest products with their smart home security systems because ADT is awesome and believes that the smarter the home, the safer the security. I can't wait to see what they do next. They're going to put Google Nest doorbells on the moon. (gasps) Actually, I'd like to know what's happening at our front door from virtually anywhere with our Google Nest doorbell. I do love how when we're out at dinner, we can see exactly what's going on at the front door. And we can control our ADT smart devices like... Lights, locks, the security system with Google Nest speakers and displays. Mm -hmm. All you have to say is, hey, Google, to get started. Well, I think it's great for people to help protect what matters most with all of this. Plus, 24-7 professional monitoring from ADT and a little help from Google. Visit ADT.com to see how ADT can help make your home smarter and safer. Hey, Google.